So welcome to another podcast, and this is for discussion board number nine, where we talk about uh, social and community services, and discussion board number 10, which talks about racism and policing. So I'm going to cover uh, the questions in both of these discussion boards, and we'll start with discussion board number nine on uh, social services and community work and racism in these areas. So the first question asked about giving a um, current example of how human service institutions uh, reproduce power hierarchies and Eurocentric ideologies. And there were some really good examples that were given. Um, I think one in particular uh, was a, a very concrete example, um, a personal example of someone who worked in a refugee or uh, drop-in center for youth. And they talked about the way in which um, staff who were at the center actually treated um, these youth um, by reprimanding them when they spoke in their um, mother tongue, they were told to speak English, and um, how this uh, was really uh, another way in which um, assimilation sort of continues, that the idea that you need to speak English, you're in Canada, all of these kinds of things. And this is, is something that many immigrants where English is not their first language often encounter. And it is a contradiction, as someone pointed out, in terms of this idea of multiculturalism uh, with the ideology that you can you know, bring your languages, your customs, your traditions, and that you're free to practice them here. And so again, the, these are sort of the contradictions. And when we talk again about democratic racism, you know, the idea that we as a society who, uh, who hold these democratic values and at the same time can hold racist values and they can operate simultaneously. And so that I found that to be a really good example of the way in which uh, human services uh, institutions will actually reproduce those power hierarchy, power hierarchies and Eurocentric ideologies. Um, then I think the responses in terms of, or the postings for the, for this question really focused around two particular human service institutions, um, that of child welfare system and the healthcare system. And so many of the examples that were discussed in terms of child welfare talked about the idea of this Eurocentric heterosexual family idea that is rooted in this notion of the nuclear family, which really propagates the ideas around heterosexism and Eurocentrism when it comes to the makeup of the family. And any communities that deviate from this sort of structure are uh, demonized or criminalized or um, negatively um, viewed. And so as a result of this, what happens is you try to enforce this notion of the family onto the communities that may deviate from these, this dominant family structure. And as a result of um, uh, structuring this idea of the family within this construct of the nuclear family, what happens is that when communities, particularly marginalized communities, deviate from the structure, they're often penalized um, or surveilled as someone pointed out in terms of indigenous family. And the consequences of not fitting into this model can be quite serious, particularly when it comes to child welfare. Examples are given of how indigenous children are removed from homes and uh, taken away from communities um, because again, uh, this is portrayed as 
uh, harm, right? When um, family structures don't model Eurocentric notions of family. And it's not to say that there are real issues in families, in all families where it comes to uh, harm, but in particular marginalized communities and groups, this notion of the Eurocentric family is a model that is used to, um, in ways that actually disadvantage those communities where it comes to uh, their children and has been used historically to separate uh, children from communities. And we see that through the process of colonialism in terms of residential schools. And we continue to see that today in terms of the child welfare system. The other institution that was talked about was healthcare and the way in which colonial Eurocentric models are still used in the healthcare system. And that devalues non-Western medicine, um, which many communities uh, use and practice. And people pointed out that there needs to be a more holistic approach in terms of looking at our healthcare system and making sure that the voices of those communities, marginalized communities, are incorporated and into our healthcare system, particularly where it comes to decision making and policies. And uh, you know, otherwise, what ends up happening is you have these white Western standards of care in a system where Indigenous people, you know, often lack many of the social determinants of health. And so, as a result of this, they are forced to deal with systems that further uh, marginalize them and further oppress them. And that's where, you know, again, I, you can see the um, distrust and um, the hesitancy of marginalized communities to deal with these systems don't, don't really reflect who they are. And oftentimes, um, if they do reflect them, it's in very stereotypical and negative ways. And that's why communities oftentimes do not want to deal with healthcare systems. And again, why you see things like vaccine hesitancy in BIPOC communities um, because of this history of um, this negative history with Western health uh, healthcare. The next question was about um, the article engaging Indigenous families in, in community-based Indigenous early childhood programs in BC. And this was a, a case study, an example of a case study. And the authors discussed the benefits of the AIDP program. And uh, the question that was on the discussion board um, asks that, you know, these benefits aside from the program, what other systemic issues need to be addressed in order to repair Indigenous family relationships that have been destroyed by the legacy of colonialism? And, you know, many of you talked about uh, the current um, findings of 215 children um, buried in a mass grave at a, a residential school in BC. And you talked about the way that, you know, a formal and meaningful apology is necessary. We've had apologies since the Harper government, but the idea of an apology seems hollow when there is no action taken after that apology. And so many of you say that, you know, we need to uh, do a full investigation of all residential schools and those remains need to be returned to the community and the people who um, who are part of this injustice need to be held to account and need to, um, you know, be punished uh, as a result of this. And, you know, the idea that these remains can be found and there's no 
accountability is horrendous and, um, and, and that needs to be addressed. There was also the suggestion that we need to fix indigenous living conditions. And the reality is that, you know, things like housing, access to water, education, medical care, all of these are basic human rights that are denied to indigenous communities. And we can't really address uh, some of the smaller aspects of um, indigenous, you know, in terms of indigenous communities, if we don't address these larger systemic issues or basic fundamental human rights, like access to housing, education, healthcare, and water. And I think that is a really good point is, you know, we can talk about um, childcare and creating programs and that sort of thing. But if communities are still struggling to meet their basic human needs, then these programs are not going to be able to uh, sustain themselves because they depend on these larger uh, social determinants of, of health. And then there was also um, someone pointed out about the incarceration rates of Indigenous people. And that needs to be addressed because the rates are extremely high. And as this person pointed out, they're also just, when we look at incarceration rates of Indigenous people, how different are they from residential schools, right? The residential uh, school system. Um, is this another way of assimilating, containing, um, separating Indigenous people from communities? And so, you know, we've, we've swapped one system for another. And so uh, this needs to be addressed. Uh, the next question, the third question was about um, the Hillier and Carlson's article uh, about indigenous uh, lands and um, Canadian environmental and social work in terms of uh, social work and their uh, complicity in maintaining and sustaining Indigenous inequality throughout Canada's history. And the question asks, what do you think this profession of social work can do to mend their relationship with Indigenous people? And I think this question raised a lot of really interesting responses. Um, I think many of you recognize that there needs to be acknowledgement of the bond between Indigenous communities and their environment, um, their physical environment, and also resources. Um, and I think that's an important uh, point because, again, when we talk about communities, Indigenous communities, there is a strong tie to the land. And uh, the land is often a contentious place, as we see with government and corporate interests in terms of displacing Indigenous people in order to um, dispossess them of their land and resources. Some of you also recognize that there needs to be respect for Indigenous cultures on the part of social workers. And that respect for that culture starts with actually reflection on the history of colonialism, um, the importance of land and resource, and the acknowledgement of resource rights on the part of Indigenous people. And uh, this was important because, again, uh, if we, you know, if social work doesn't understand the history of colonialism, it doesn't respect the culture, then what ends up happening is social work will continue to do what it has done uh, from its beginning is to position itself as saviors of Indigenous people uh, who are seen to be broken or in need of fixing or victims. 
And that is a very problematic approach that has been part of not just social work, but many of these sort of helping professions. So the reality is to see Indigenous people as having agency, uh, that they need and should have a say in terms of their own um, uh, issues and how they should be addressed. And um, I think also that many of you suggested is that there need to be more Indigenous social workers who understand uh, their own issues and also allow for trust to be built. And for those who, for all social workers, there needs to be mandatory education for social work in terms of, and this education needs to focus on things like colonialism, decolonization, white supremacy, um, anti-oppression, um, and all of those things that are crucial to understanding uh, marginalized communities. And so adopting things like an anti-oppression lens when we work with communities, uh, uh, marginalized communities, and respecting those communities in terms of their own knowledge and experience. When we talk about indigenous communities, the role of elders needs to be considered. Um, and the reality is, as social workers, it's important not to impose uh, values onto communities, but to listen to those communities and uh, listen in a way where it is one of respect and learning and um, recognizing that those communities know best how to address their own issues. And that was um, lesson nine. So really good uh, points that were made with respect to um, racism in uh, community and uh, social and social work and um, community. Uh, the next lesson is lesson 10, and this talks about racism and policing, and there were a number of questions that were asked. Um, only two of the questions were addressed. Um, question number two, which talks about community policing, and this is the article where you actually integrate social workers in, in policing and the role that they have in terms of effectively dealing with communities. And the question was really, do you agree with this approach? And um, is there a better approach? And again, if you read this article, you can see that there are many benefits to using social workers in terms of policing, community policing, because it does help to um, address some of the issues, particularly around mental health and, um, you know, where it comes to communities, marginalized communities who do uh, suffer um, mental health um, issues and um, concerns, who do have mental health issues and concerns um, that are related to things like racism right, or other forms of oppression and, and feed into um, their uh, mental health and wellness. And so, you know, there are benefits, but there are also, you know, I would caution too that, you know, there are issues. It, this is not a perfect solution. Um, you know, the, the issue of, of policing, it, there is a culture of policing where racism is embedded and systemic in that culture. And if we just include people in that existing culture, does it actually change the culture of policing, right? And that's really what you need to do is actually dismantle the existing uh, culture of policing and uh, predicated on a different model because the model of policing is built on a colonial model. So just by adding people in to sort of address some of the issues doesn't really get rid of that culture. It also creates hierarchies around, um, you know, um, authority and um, uh, knowledge within when you have different professional groups coming together. So, you know, this question I think was a really good question. I think it would have been nice to see some posts um, in terms of 
uh, addressing it. But the questions that were uh, addressed were question number one, which asked about Muslims' experiences in terms of discrimination and racial profiling, particularly in airports and at borders. And it asks for examples, other examples, where Muslims are forced to manage their identities and explain how it further perpetuates the othering of Canadian Muslims. And, you know, this question was posed before the uh, recent event uh, in terms of the murder of uh, a Muslim family in London, Ontario. So it's very interesting to see your responses in hindsight to this event. And many of you actually raised a lot of the um, issues that Muslims in Canada struggle with. And um, we see, you know, the impact of this idea of managing identity uh, the negative impact and the tragic results of, you know, a family that is was targeted because of their Muslim identity. And so it, this brings to light the importance of these kinds of questions, because it is something that Muslim uh, communities deal with. And not just Muslim communities, but communities of color who are perceived to be Muslims, right? The idea of racialized people, people who are Sikh, who are, you know, um, people who are, are, are from South Asian, Middle Eastern backgrounds, they may not be Muslim, but they are racialized in ways that, um, that where people are perceived them to be Muslims and therefore they become targets as well. So some of your responses talked about, you know, the way in which uh, Muslims manage their identity. Uh, one of the big ones was the idea around your, your name. Your name uh, racializes you in uh, in terms of your religious identity and, and Muslim names uh, is a way that has has become something that has to be managed because unfortunately there's such negative stigma that is attached to Muslim names that you know bring up all sorts of negative stereotypes or stereotypes um, that disadvantage Muslim people. So when you apply for a job and your last name is a Muslim name, um, you always are asking yourself, did they you know did I not get a call back because of my name? Right, um, and so um, in in terms of the labor market, that's you know oftentimes people will anglicize their names or change their names, and after nine eleven, that became very difficult to actually get name changes. Um, prior to nine eleven, you know people could it was much easier to change your name, but you know the fact that people have to even think about this speaks to the way in which um, Muslim identity is uh, a barrier to even access to jobs. Um, then people talked about, you know, how they actually dress and what they wear and being very conscious of this. And I think that that's a, you know, that's becoming even more of an issue as we can see from the current uh, uh, event in terms of the murder of that, of a Muslim family in uh, London, Ontario, where you know, we can ask ourselves, like, does what they're wearing make them a target? And we know that that's true because there are many examples in, in uh, airports and in borders where people have to think about how do I portray myself in terms of my identity, in terms of what I wear and how I look and how, you know, I groom myself. And those symbols of um, Muslim identity, those uh, things like, you know, how you dress or uh, if you have uh, a, a woman, if you decide to wear hijab 
all of these kinds of things are things that Muslims now have to consider um, and are so much more vigilant around, um, particularly, you know, in religious, in religions where the clothing that you wear is linked to your religious identity, like the hijab. Uh, many women have talked about struggling with whether to wear it or not. And as we see in places like Quebec, where there's a ban on religious symbols, um, that doesn't, you know, that what that does is it actually um, limits the movement of, of particular bodies from public spaces, right? You're excluded from those spaces. Uh, and that becomes something that is is quite oppressive. Um, the notion somebody talked about the idea of random checks at the airport, right? And who gets randomly checked? And we know that this notion of random randomness is not something really uh, is not uh, something that is um, unbiased, right? Random is really not random. I know that myself, having been uh, randomly checked at airports many times when I'm traveling with colleagues, and I'm usually the random. And many of you talk about the same experience, right? Um, taking public transit. That's also another where people have to think about how they dress and how they present themselves because as we've seen, there are many incidents of people being verbally and physically abused, particularly women who wear hijab, um, that they have to make a choice of whether when they're taking public transit of what they wear and, and what they, you know, what they cannot wear. And that becomes a really hard choice. Um, and then there were other examples in terms of um, accommodations. Uh, a really good example someone gave was about uh, sports and in high school where, you know, there's mandatory dress codes and oftentimes they don't coincide with religious um, uh, beliefs around dress. And sometimes there's no accommodations or there's a refusal for accommodations. And we see this also in terms of uh, prayer, accommodations for prayer in the workplace. And there is, in the Human Rights Code, um, companies have to accommodate, um, you know, religious accommodations in the workplace, uh, unless there's undue burden on the part of the organization. But it is a human rights uh, thing. But people talk about having to get to, having those struggles around getting those accommodations. So, um, you know, this is just another way of where Muslims are othered as Canadian, as Canadian Muslims. Um, so really good and interesting and very, uh, very pertinent and relevant um, examples in terms of question one. Uh, the last question was about um, the article, which was, um, you know, talking about Pruel and the way in which the Canada as an oligarchic state has abused its power to surveil First Nations and their allies because they're portrayed as threats to the state. And the question asks, what are some of the ways in which surveillance is conducted to monitor Indigenous communities? And is the extent of these methods justified? And a few of you answered this, and you talked about, you know, the history of surveillance in Indigenous communities through things like the uh, Indian status card, the reserve pass, and the ID disc for Inuit people. And so there has been a history of um, surveillance. And surveillance is always about control, right? It, when you start to surveil communities, it's about controlling those communities. And as we've seen over time, that type of surveillance has become, as one of you, as someone pointed out, there's a more military style surveillance. Um, and it's become um, much more um, linked to state violence, right? 
And so we see the use of uh, the police and the military to surveil activists and protesters and uh, also position these activists and protesters as uh, terrorists or threats to national security as, as violent. This kind of discourse is being used um, not just in, in, this, in, in, in the dominant media, but also in terms of social media, and we see uh, even just the way in which surveillance can happen can be more covert. It can be through social media tracking, wiretapping, and so on. And there's a tendency also to uh, victim blame Indigenous people, right, when uh, they bring their concerns uh, around um, issues around uh, self-determination, land-based issues, resources, and so on. Uh, there's a tendency of uh, the dominant uh, and dominant and non-Indigenous people to victim blame Indigenous people. So lots of really good examples. I think, you know, when you read the last articles in, in, in number, in lesson 12, you'll see about the way in which activism has really um, taken off in particular marginalized communities. And, you know, as activism um, gains traction, you're going to see more and more of this type of military-style surveillance on the part of the state to continue to control um, these communities because it's about um, resources and land. And in order to be able, when people challenge this notion of, you know, who has act, who has the rights to land and resources, uh, the state becomes implicated in this, and uh, the state can use. Uh, the military and the police to do its work in terms of the control and surveillance of it, uh, um, indigenous communities and other communities, uh, marginalized communities that make these claims on the state. So really good posts and uh, response posts. And um, thank you.